and then I realized I was thinking about it sort of in the wrong light or the wrong way. I was like, underwater is like landscape photography. So what I would take with my DSLR and, uh, on land, you just now had to adjust the technicality behind it and start taking landscapes under the water, adjusting for, for, for some things. And so I think that's where I started learning more. So like now I started actually studying up, following other photographers that like I, I was inspired by their photography and starting to think of now, what is it that I want to show? It's episode 24 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Keon Wilkie. Welcome to Dive in the Podcast, your favorite podcast about all types of diving, scuba, tech, free diving, and more. We cover it all. Every Monday, we post new episodes filled with diving news, interesting dive topics, ocean advocacy, and much more. Hi, everyone. I'm Justin Miller. Hi, I'm April Weikert. I'm Amit Parisran. I'm Nick Winkler. And we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. This week, we speak to Keon Wilkie. He's a paddy scuba instructor, photographer, underwater photographer, and when he's not avidly following his travel dreams, Keon is based with EcoDive in Grenada. Thanks for joining us, Keon. Oh, thank you for having me, Justin. It's, uh, it's great to get another person from Grenada here, but I guess you're not actually originally from Grenada. No, I'm not actually. Like, originally from Trinidad and Tobago, but happy, happy like- in Grenada. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Just like someone else on the podcast. That's right. I have a finally have a fellow Trinidadian on the show. It's uh, it's a great <laughs> thing to have happen here. Oh, thank you for having me again. Yes. Well, I just want to jump in here, guys, and say uh, congratulations to everybody because it's been six months. Uh, this is episode twenty-four. That means we've been podcasting now uh, for six months, and uh, yeah, that's a pretty great achievement. Congrats, pretty everybody. Sweet. Pretty sweet. That's awesome. Excellent news. It's exciting. You know what they say. Uh, 21 days forms a habit. So, I mean, we've been doing this for six months, so it's, uh, I think we're on for good now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 21 days, 24 podcasts. It's, yeah. uh, basically that's, the oh, same thing. That's yeah. a habit. Last week we had Gary Dallas on. He was so interesting. He's a, a huge wealth of knowledge. Admit, I hope you get to take a course with him someday. Uh, he's kind of a character there. You know what? I, I was uh, really, really quite excited about that. Just having, you know, having seen some of his stuff in the past. And there was this chance, like kind of off pre-COVID chance that he was going to visit Bell Island and I was going to get onto a course with him. So I, I think uh, I'm going to try to make that happen at some point. But I, I got to say, a very open individual, like you said, a wealth of knowledge and uh, very passionate about diving and being like, you know, great at it or trying to get to that point, right? It's like he, I think one of his quotes where he was talking about the only problems is really our human problems and, uh, mm-hmm. and just, you just have to address those and, and everything would be fine. So I really love his philosophy. He's got a great sense of humor and thanks Gary for being on the show. We can't wait to have you back. Echo that sentiment. Exactly. Uh, in the news tonight, uh, we have some bad news to report. Uh, shark diving pioneer, Dr. Eric Ritter, died in his sleep in his Florida home on August 28th at the age of 61. While his death was unexpected, he was reported to have suffered from a heart condition. Probably remember him from those Discovery Channel episodes where he was walking in the uh, waist-deep water among bull sharks, and uh, when he actually ended up getting bit by a bull shark in the calf, and he survived that, and uh, went on to do uh, lots of stuff uh, for sharks, sometimes a little controversial, but always uh, with great intentions. So, Dr. Eric Ritter, be missed. Your passion for sharks was definitely unmatched. 
Yeah, it really is a tragedy when you when you meet people that push that hard for change. And, you know, I mean, I think whenever you do groundbreaking work, whatever that might be, you end up in the situation where it, it is to a degree controversial. So, you know, you've got to push that limit somehow. And often that means challenging traditions and norms. And uh, some people just don't tend to like that. Right. So it's uh, it's um, really sad that that happened, especially at that young age at 61, you know? Um, but mm -hmm, I think I was reading that, uh, uh, an article on divernet.com, uh, and there was a friend of his, I think Robert Wilpring that, uh, that gave a pretty good, um, statement at the end where he says that you gave everything for the sharks, your life and your home were the seas of our world and the inhabitants, the sharks were your children. And that speaks, I think quite a lot, uh, to what he had done. So yeah, it's really sad news. And uh, disappointing for the for the dive community i guess i guess people that pioneer things like like shark um conservation or um you know they're they're well valued especially in this world where the oceans are, are struggling yeah it's it's unfortunate somebody like that would pass away but there are other people that are going to advocate for the oceans um and you know that's that's people that people are doing photography or people that are diving so I think that is up to to all of us to sort of advocate for the the, the ocean that we dive in. And I, I know one person that is advocating, you know, his slice of the ocean through photography. Um, that's Keon, who's joining us here today. Um, so Keon, you're originally from Trinidad, right? So you travel a lot. What would you say is your favorite thing about going home? Oh, I would say mommy's cooking, though. That would be the number one thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, I would say being home... Uh, from down at time, really, it's uh, all about family when I get home because I haven't actually lived at home coming up now on, I would say, what, 19 years, almost 20 years. So it is a long time that I haven't been at home um, in that sense. So I am sort of a tourist sometimes when I get back home. But I think really the most important thing is spending it with family. Uh, the changes that happen in Trinidad each time I get back there is, is, is sometimes uh, huge. Uh, from roadways mm. to to buildings to new uh, cineplexes and so forth, it is quite uh, amazing to see the the infrastructure change when I get back home. So I feel the same way as you when uh, you know I, I can like everything you've said there, except for the fact that Mum's cooking is now across the harbor in Halifax. So I'm pretty happy about that. But uh, certainly you. for me, the yeah, the one thing that I miss when I go back is that my first stop is always doubles, right? So uh, it doesn't matter where I am; it's off to get doubles. But yeah, in terms of the changes, you you couldn't have said it better. I, I'm always shocked at what's going on there, and and really how much more and more like the Americas it's becoming. So yeah, I do feel like a stranger as well. Anyhow, so I mean Trinidad. I would think there's there's a notion there, but uh, where where was your first memory of the ocean, and what was it? Well, I, I would say uh, for me, my first memory, or I'd say vivid memory of the ocean, and I, I kind of go all the way back to about six years old was when my dad was working in Saint Lucia, and out of Castries, like we lived out there for. But but that was my first vivid memory of just the ocean, uh, and literally. July, August holidays, every day, morning, noon, nighttime, just swimming, enjoying the ocean, the Caribbean Sea out of uh, St. Lucia. Um, but like for me, Trinidad, like I think when people talk of like the ocean, they think of the beaches, like, you know, going up to Maracas or Tyrico Bay uh, and enjoying uh, sort of wave riding and stuff like that. Uh, and the odd family vacation that you head to Tobago, the beautiful uh, Boca Reef. And the brain corals, the massive brain corals that, that, that used to be there, I have to say it like that. 
I would say back in the, the late 80s and the 90s. So. The, the Trinidad of old with those kind of pristine beaches have changed slightly, but uh, there are a lot of guys doing some conservation works in, in around the area trying to make some changes and keep, th- keep things going. I guess one of the things that come to mind to me, because as a kid growing up in Trinidad who was very water-oriented, um, scuba was never a thing that was common to us. And so I was curious, um, how did you get into, into scuba diving, I guess? Well, uh, that, I think that story takes us around the world and back. But uh, for me, growing up in Trinidad, I would agree with you completely because I think uh, the idea of scuba diving uh, was not like was not something pushed or promoted when I was growing mm-hmm. up. For me, I started like getting involved in water sports between uh, uh, swimming and water polo was one of the big things growing up. Uh, and I just love I just love water. I think like from to this day, I think my mom says it. Like, you're a fish from since you were young. Uh, and I think that was something that brought me back into sort of like the, the dive industry after like a career in corporate, uh, moving out for university to the US, going to school in New York, working in finance, consulting, and then leaving my job to go travel the world and then coming back into like sort of full circle, uh, becoming a dive master and working in the industry for the last few years. Now, you'd mentioned there was a pretty cool first experience with scuba. Well, no. So my first experience with scuba diving would, would, would take me back to Tobago and like a holiday that we went out there. Okay. Um, and I was around 16. And the exact circumstances to why, like I would say holiday, but the exact reason why I was there is a little blurry. But I remember being on a fishing boat and watching these guys uh, sort of like jump off with like a, what, what, what I know now to be a regulator. <laughs> um but it was just like a mouthpiece and they like they weren't even wearing uh masks they'd be wearing like swimming goggles Uh, and they had a like like they would pinch their nose as they jumped in it was really like as i think back more on on the experience and so i think that was like one of my first uh sort of really uh memories of of of, of going under the water with like a a a swimming goggles type thing Mm -hmm. regulated in my mouth jumping off a boat and kicking down to stay down what happened then it was like i remember having a, a talk with the the, the 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 fisherman which was the boat captain and him telling me that i can yeah you can get you, you can scuba dive but i think what i did do afterwards and what i would find out much later on when i started pursuing diving as, as something more than just uh, a fun activity was that whatever i did was never a certification because it never actually registered anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think to this date, I think one of the funny stories of that is like I, I became a dive master when I had moved out to Thailand. So I did everything, uh, advanced rescue diver, got my dive master certification. And when my journey of traveling took me to Mexico, where I got my instruct when I did when I did my instructor to become a paddy instructor, I remember one of the course directors coming up to me and said, Paddy has no record of like your open water course and they're asking <laughs> questions. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I have everything up to it. They certified me as a, as a professional, as a dive master. Uh, I, I really can't explain anything beyond that. And I think at some point somebody just closed the file and said, yeah, he's a dive master with us. We have his card. <laughs> Let's just move <laughs> on we'll from, move there. from there. And so yeah. I think that piece is just history now. Um, so I would say, yeah, that's like sort of like, uh, in a nutshell, 
just sort of like the quick journey through uh, becoming a dive professional. Um, but I think a lot of it was my 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 my, my, my sort of like passion for traveling traveling the globe, going to, to 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 different parts of the world and really experiencing and immersing in culture. And I found that something about the ocean just brought people together again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I think that that, that, that that is something that like I shared a lot uh, in when I was traveling, the idea that I was a scuba diver, that there was a different, mm-hmm. there, there was this different world under the water that you can share with people that either had been there before or had never actually gone diving before. So, mm-hmm. so is that, that tie in to why you wanted to become an instructor in the first place? For me, I think in the beginning, becoming an instructor was a, a, a practical decision because um, mm-hmm. I saw it as an opportunity to travel the world and have a means of like actually making a living. And then it started to mean more. I think really after I became an instructor, like I, I was living in Mexico at the time when I got my instructor and I was working for a pretty big company out there. And some of the things that I saw, I think it, it, it didn't sit as, as well as I thought like a you know, scuba diving instructor should be because I didn't, I didn't see much conservation. I didn't see much uh, sort of representation in a sense. And I mm-hmm. think that took me on a sort of a journey through when I started traveling Central America. Uh, so from well, Central and South America, so from Colombia back up uh, to Belize, I sort of did a, a bit of a, a stint traveling for a few months and diving pretty pretty uh, avidly throughout uh, the countries that I could have uh, dove when I was traveling. And there was something about uh, not seeing sort of this, uh, the story being told of the ocean and how people can help it or the idea of seeing too much plastic in the ocean and people not really having any regard as to, well, part of what's contributing to that is a human human overuse of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think... Uh, I started to become more aware. I think in my mind, having been so close to the ocean, having like grown up so close to the ocean, having been sort of around the world, seeing these different impacts as I go, I think it started like um, sort of just creating more of a, 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 a energy that I, I had to start to pursue more of. Yeah. And I think still traveling was still on top like for me it's sort of like a not a one track mind but it was still on like the top priority to see more places to experience more cultures <laughs> to to meet right. new people uh i just had the bug of like traveling so i remember like having worked in uh, after like i traveled central america i stopped i i sort of like found a little home in rotan in honduras mm-hmm. and i i would say it was my second uh teaching job uh, and I worked for uh, an English gentleman out there that ran a dive center. And for me, Rotan's uh, reefs, beautiful, beautiful reefs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sitting on the uh, second largest barrier reef. Uh, I, it, it was something that I think the diving there was phenomenal. Visibility on average, 60 to 100 feet easily. And just the, just the diversity of life, I thought, was like, it was just brilliant. And then it, it started pushing more, like for me, interacting with people in the industry from new scuba divers to 
I would say hardcore professionals into the free divers and stuff like that. I think it was really something. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it was sort of like that thing where it reaffirmed what I was doing in Asia on diving. Because I feel as though when I was, like just to compare it with like when I was traveling in Southeast Asia, I think diving for me was more of like the thrill of like getting dives, diving new experiences, seeing new uh, places. But I think when I started working in it, it started to become more of like, oh, well, there's more to be done. I was going to ask you what your favorite part of teaching is, but I don't know. It might be safe to say that it's uh, that you get to travel around. <laughs> that For me, I, I would say yes, that, that, that is one of the, the favorite things. But I think also for me, interacting with people from different backgrounds was like also a big thing. Uh, more often than not, and I, I, like, I, I know some people think of it slightly controversial, but I think representation matters. Mm-hmm. And... Pretty much nine out of like the 10 places that I've taught scuba diving, I think the biggest representation I had seen was not people from the particular country that I was working in or diving in. And so it was something that I think was important as well. Being able to to, to be someone that somebody looked at and said, hey, you know what? You look like me and you're a scuba diving instructor. I kind of want to do that. And I, I think that 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 also in itself in in itself started to create again why I think this was a this choice that I made that was like I would say a risky choice in the beginning started to show sort of like the depth of what it can be. And I can really uh, I think empathize with that because uh, I know that's a thing that I've spoken to a lot of female divers about when they, you know, they've said like, it's great to have an instructor who's a female instructor, because I don't see that, you know, you may see some DMS and what have you, but it's, it's great to have an instructor who's a female that takes the lead. And I imagine in your case, that comes across as well. Um, So quick question for you there, then Uh, what's your favorite place and dive destination? (laughs) I'd say that's a tough question, but to to this date, I think uh, I have not seen Diving, like I'd seen when I I, I dove in uh, Komodo Park, Komodo National Park. Like I had mm-hmm. the opportunity to be out there in Flores and to do um, quite a few dives out in Komodo National Park. And I think just the, the diversity of marine life, the pristine of the reefs. And this was back in 2014. So I'm sure there could be a lot more change. I haven't been back since. And I'm sure there could have been much more changes in it. But I think when I was traveling back then, it was one of those places that like just the experience of going on a dive 15 meters so shallow enough uh, about 50 feet you go from everything from macro so nudie branks uh pygmy seahorses mandarin fish then you get to the big pelagics of the manta rays you get the sharks you get literally everything just rolling through on one dive and mm-hmm. I think that's something I think I miss a little bit just because I go back and I was like, I actually did wish I was doing more photography back then because <laughs> I, I, I knew the shots that I can get based on what I do now. Would mm-hmm. I, I think I would have like, like, like some of these amazing underwater photog- uh, photographs that I would have taken if I were, were like more into the photography piece back then. 
Man, that that's like the worst because I went to when I went to Florida, I ended up going to Tiger Beach and then I was like, I had my housing and everything. And I was like, nah, I'm going to go do a course. So I don't need to take all this stuff with me. Right. Didn't know I was going to go to Tiger <laughs> Beach. I show up there. All I've got a GoPro and everybody else has got these massive systems with strobes and everything. And I'm there like kicking myself for like, two, you know, two days. Just, yeah, I, I feel you, man. I get it. <laughs> I guess that in mind, with all these travel restrictions, if they were lifted tomorrow, where are you going to go first? Okay, so since we're taping this, I'll make the obvious comment. I got to visit the girlfriend first. Just because it's it, it, it's been quite a few months. But I, I like literally, I think on my list uh, that I had, like I was planning, was to do Bimini and Bahamas to do a bit of diving out there this year, just because I hadn't been up on that side doing any diving. So uh, I think it's Tiger Shark Beach, I think is one of them. Uh, Tiger 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 Beach. Beach. Yeah, Yeah, Tiger Beach was one of them. Uh, But just the idea to, like, it's, I think, been a long time. Like, I'm thinking back, like, we might have seen a random tiger shark when I was working in Mexico, because, again, Mexico has quite uh, quite a bit of diversity, I think, when it comes to, to, to marine life compared to, I think, the Southern Caribbean uh, that we see under the water. Um, but I, I, I think diving Bahamas, just to, see, just to dive with some pelagics, because it's been so long, uh, I think that, that, that would that, that's one on, uh, on, on top of the list. But I think really uh, on the bucket list item of what I was hoping to do within two years, I think X Mountain Ingaloo Reef, uh, Western Australia, was on the list up there. Mm. Uh, to, to to pretty much go dive out there um, with the humpbacks and the the mantas and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, if if if, if, if restrictions were, were were lifted tomorrow, guaranteed I'm on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> Gu- guaranteed I'd be on a plane. <laughs> well, that works. <laughs> so I'm gonna take this in a totally different direction. So when I'm not talking about scuba diving, I am a accountant, uh, but you left a career in finance to travel. So can you tell me especially a little bit about that? Because I think I might be on that cliff. <laughs> All right. Let, let, let's delve into that, that one then. Uh, by trade, I'm an actuary. Uh, so studied a long time, countless hours in books and stuff. So like I, I understand accountants because I've worked with many, uh, uh, <laughs> many in the day. Um, I think for me, when I, when I look back, because it's one of those things, when I did quit my job, I, I would say it's one of the hardest decisions that I have made. But each day that passes by, it, it, it just seemed like the right decision. And I think my, my um, circumstance and situations allowed me to be able to make that change with, I would say, limited impact on, 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 on the things that I uh, had at the, the, at the moment. So... I think a big thing for a lot of people that they consider is is is, is debt, uh, family commitments, whether or not you have kids or not, if you're married or not. I think it's one of those things that I think it's huge. Um, so for me, I think still being what, what I consider, even though I was 30 when I, I decided to, to leave my job, I was still young. And like my 30s, were, were, like I'd always said in my mind that in my 30s, I wanted to, 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 for it to be me, like to be able to do things that I wanted to do, you know? So I think what, what I, I was able to do, I think, in my 20s working hard enough was I, I did set up a few, uh, what I'd say, nest eggs and investments that I think allowed me to, 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 to live, 
I would say not like for me, because I don't live, I think, extravagantly when I travel. I do very basic lifestyle travel. I'm not, I'm not the Instagram person that's like living it up at like a, a five-star resort and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm at the three-star hostel in a bunk bed. Better than one star. <laughs> yeah, I've been in those as well too. And that's typically not 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 necessarily my choice or uh, <laughs> my doing. But um, it's one of those things where I think being able to travel is more important I think being in a location and be able to experience it is more important than the luxuries I think that uh Absolutely. that go that that some people enjoy when they travel. Uh mm-hmm. I'm happy with a a local beer that's let's let's say a dollar US. Okay? And a street food uh taco. Let's call it like yeah, like a, an Alpha store taco on the street spending like a like a dollar 50 or 2 dollars on a meal. I'm 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 absolutely comfortable with that and a place to rest my my head at night that's I would say safe, right? Um, and 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 that's the thing. I think when I was when I was like full time traveling, that, that I think one of the things was like I had like a GoPro when I was traveling, but like I couldn't see myself traveling with my equipment, uh, in, and staying in a hostel. I I think I'd be like sleeping, hugging my my my, my camera housing up, <laughs> sort of stuff, like uh, you know, chained to my arm or something. <laughs> but it's one of those things where I look back and I, I would say every, every, every destination that I traveled to, country, city, town, I think it was that, that, that for me, living that journey rather than the, just getting to the place. And coming back to what, 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 what you initially asked about, coming from a corporate job to that, I think there was a freedom to it that it's hard to explain I think if you're sitting at your desk or getting up every morning to go sit at your desk, I think it's it's that freedom that you can potentially describe to someone, but they won't know it until they actually do it kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel there. I remember you talked about Roatan earlier and then brought back to the month I spent there doing my dive master years ago. Um, and, you know, having those little street taco breakfast deals. I forget what those were called. called but they were baleadas. so delicious. I miss those, just, yeah. <laughs> baleadas, yeah, I those things. Those. Man, so good. If there's and so one cheap thing about and, Justin, yeah. he loves a burrito. <laughs> I do. Well, it's like more like a taco. <laughs> Is it more like a taco? Almost. Well, you like those yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, just being being there for the experience and not having a five star resort at uh, behind you and all that. It's yeah, definitely, definitely in my uh, right in my uh, line of thinking as well. So we're gonna uh, take a quick break though, and we'll come back with more. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Scuba. Torpedo Rays is a local dive shop in Nova Scotia. If you're not in Nova Scotia, that's okay. They've got a wonderful website, torpedorays.com, T-O-R-P-E-D-O-R-A-Y-S.com. All of the scuba gear you could ever need is there. If you can't find it, give Jason a call, 902-481-0444, and he'll be happy to help you out. In these challenging times, it's always great to shop local. Don't go to a huge, big box help support your local dive shop buy something you've had your eye on excellent time to make a good deal buy a gift certificate to use later whatever the case may be torpedo rays and torpedorays.com will be there for you once again their number is 902-481-0444 or torpedorays.com 
Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're talking to Keon about his travel and his passion for diving and photography. How did you discover your passion for photography? Did it come before or after you became a, a diver? I would say uh, for me, photography was something that like, I think laid in the fringes for a while. Like I think for me, my mom, my mom used to do art when she was much younger before she had all of us. And then we came along and she had like uh, these three, three kids to take care of. And I don't think we were easy growing up. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think the, the idea of art has always sat sort of like behind me in a way that it was a hobby. In any, in any sense, because growing up, I think Amit could relate to this. Growing up in a Caribbean household, l- literally, art is not a, a profession. It is something you do after you get the uh, the mathematics out of the way, uh, the English, mm-hmm. the physics, the chemistry. Mm-hmm. Like growing up, there were yes. three job roles that you can get into. You got to become a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. All right, it was <laughs> exactly it. That is, I don't know it, how many it, times it, I've heard those words. <laughs> It was one of those things where if you said you wanted to be uh, a musician or an artist, you were like, yes, you can do that after uh, after work. You can do that after school. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so, like we were from the same family. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it, it is a cultural thing. Um, and I think it has changed quite a bit. But um, for me, I think traveling in itself spurred this idea of like, wow, you know what? Um there's a lot of art out here. There's a lot of um, things that you see on a day-to-day that you have this privilege to see on a day-to-day basis. And I think for me in the beginning when I started traveling, I was quite opposed to the photography idea of it because like, I think Instagram and social media was starting to blow up in a way that I thought was not, not, not necessarily a great thing because people, anywhere you go, people were like, oh, let's, let's take a picture. Let me get a selfie. And it sort of took away from the, the moment. Like one, one, one memory that I had was, uh, I think in Indonesia, I was in uh, the city of Ubud and we were doing like a sunrise hike to Mount Batur. And so we woke up at like 2.45 in the morning. Uh, the, 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 the tour company sent a van. We, we, we got dropped off at the base and we were hiking in, the, in, in, in sort of the wee mornings wee early mornings and I remember getting to the top of uh, Mount Batur and like it was one of those amazing sunrises sort of the on top of the the mount sort of like a bit of a a cloud cover at the the crater base and the sun just rising above it and everybody had their cameras out and I remember just sitting there and just enjoying what is I Mm. I think a memory and a moment that to this day I I haven't forgotten Um, and I think really I had this sort of like internal debate of like, do you want to be that person, that camera set up on tripod and you're only there for the shot kind of thing? And I think that that idea had evolved because I think in the beginning, it's it just because it wasn't something that I did regularly. I, 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 I didn't have the mindset to think beyond just the technicality of what is photography, I think. and. The more I traveled, I think the more I met people, the more like I, I started appreciating things and it became more of like a lifestyle choice. I think photography just came more naturally, I think, um, to, to me in a way that I started seeing things and, and doing things that people were like, oh, that's a really cool fo- photo that you took or 
mm. hey, that's a very unique perspective kind of thing. And, and then I started sort of starting to push my limits a little bit. So you would say your photography evolved in that sense, right? It did. It did. I, I would say yeah. it, it definitely did it. It didn't, it didn't drop, drop on me like that. I think it, it grew one step at a time. And I think it really started with more landscape photography than anything. How did that evolution take you from, you know, let's say landscape to underwater? Because everybody seems to have a different path and, and getting underwater is, is a whole other ballgame. Absolutely. And I think for me, uh, after I became an instructor in Mexico, like I, I worked like working at, at, at like a big dive center. I remember having um, this production team that would do sort of like um, these action takes of like new divers. So they would tag along with us on a dive. And they take these different angles under the water, video stuff, and, and photographs. And then they would be selling it to the clients at the end of the dive. And I remember it started there because there were parts of the, the, the process that I was like, oh, man, that's really cool to be behind the camera taking these shots of uh, students and, and, and taking shots of the reef. I think that's something cool because then now you could showcase what you're actually experiencing under the water. Uh, it's not until I think I came to Grenada that I really got the opportunity to do that. Because I think having worked Mexico as an instructor, Rotan and diving up and down Central and South America, like it was one of those things where like, one, if I was traveling, I wasn't carrying any set of gear. And mm. two, like if I were working, I was working as an instructor, which is a pretty hectic lifestyle in itself while you're working. You didn't really have much time for like a camera on the side if you were taking be it DSDs or open waters, teaching open waters. Mm. So it's one of those things where I think in Grenada, when I came here, having the opportunity, I think, at eco diving out of eco dive, where there was a bit of a need, I think I, I, I had a bit of the um, the goal to push for it a little bit, and seeing a bit of an opening there, uh, I took advantage of that in a way, or took advantage of that opportunity to to to, to position myself to to start doing some um, underwater photography, and so I didn't actually purchase my first underwater camera, like uh, you guys had Christine on the show uh, a, a few weeks back, but uh, mm. I think the opportunity provided uh, at Eco Diving with Christine, like uh, she had a TG, TG4 compact camera with a housing. And I was like, hey, maybe I can grab some shots. And I, I remember taking the first couple of underwater like uh, shots that I would take or dives that I were doing and carrying the camera. I think I sucked really bad because I couldn't, I, I don't think I was getting proper lighting I, I wasn't getting uh the the camera itself working the way that i wanted it to work and then i realized i was thinking about it sort of in the wrong light or the wrong way i was like underwater is like landscape photography so what i would take with my dslr and, uh, on land you just now had to adjust the technicality behind it and start taking landscapes under the water adjusting for for, for some things and so i think that's where i started learning more so like now i started actually studying up following other photographers that like i i was inspired by their photography and starting to think of now what is it that i want to show and i think mm -hmm. that's where i think underwater photography sort of started to blossom so so who inspires you oh man like i, I would say like for me from underwater photography like a uh, big person in the industry i think paul nicklin out of canada mm. actually He's like, yeah. from, from, from a photography standpoint, I just think like for me, I think his career as a National Geographic um, photographer from both land and underwater stuff, I think is amazing though. Um, 
I think him, uh, his wife, Christina, like, I think their photography is actually phenomenal. But then, like, if you start getting more localized and stuff like that, like, I worked with a couple, well, with the instructors, when I was an instructor in Mexico, some of the sort of uh, photographers out there, uh, more local guys. Uh, I think they're part of a production company called Lupita Production. But they, I think, having an opportunity to see it first and what they were doing then, I was just drawing back from all of these different experiences and didn't realize how much it was playing a role in actually developing my own sort of like uh, way of taking uh, pictures and, and photographs under the water. Uh, but like, mm. I, I think around the world, like some people are like, like, like Instagram guys that I follow, like Andre Moscow out of Bahamas or Alex Kidal from Australia. Like these are guys that I think started very slowly uh, building sort of their portfolio and trying. I realized that's the, that's the most important thing, getting out there and just taking photos. Just shooting, yeah. yeah. Like for me, and, and that's one thing with photography that I've learned more and more every single time is that the more you go out there and play with your camera, the more you start getting stuff uh, that you want and developing ideas that you, um, uh, like you, you want it in the direction that you want to head to. Um, more recently, I would say, like, we, we did a shoot. So I was working with a local Grenadian um, photographer, I think, Nick, you know, uh, Arthur. Yeah, and, yeah I, saw, I actually saw the, I saw the photos you posted. And so he, he came to me with an idea, and he, he initially he was like, you know what, I'm going to try with a GoPro. And I was like, hey, if you don't mind, like, I, I hear what you're saying, like, let, let's bring the rig out and see what we can do. And I remember, like, we, we, did, we, we did a day shoot, like, we did one shoot, and, like, it didn't turn out what, what he imagined. I said, hey, you know what, man? Sometimes that happens. Like you go out and you shoot, and you shoot hundreds of pictures. You get it back on your computer and you look at them and you're like, wow, I've just got to delete all of those now because I'm not going to be using any of them. And it, it, was, it was sort of like that. It, it just didn't work out. Like uh, light, lighting didn't work in some aspects. We didn't have like the angles we weren't getting. The, it, it, it just wasn't working. And then we went back the next day. We took our time. We learned from the day before. And we got a shot, like and like for me, I shot a shot that Otto wanted to to work on from a from a artistic purpose, and I, then I then for me, as we were shooting, I had an idea, and it was it, it was nice that the models and everybody were like, you know what, I don't mind, like let's let's take an extra ten minutes. I have this idea. If you can do this, that, and the other for me, let me try. And then I I kind of put something together when I because I think most of my creativity comes when I sit behind the computer after I see a picture, if, if, if it's something that it could be artistic or if it's something that I actually was looking to get. I sort of like, I, I don't limit myself solely by, well, I went out for this photo. I didn't get it. That happens. But then I was like, what can I do with the photo that I have in front of me? Can I make something of it afterwards? So Keon, every week I do a safety tip, but I was thinking this week, I mean, when you're uh, an underwater photographer, you have a lot of distractions. So it's pretty easy to lose track of your depth time, your air, or even just like how deep you are. Uh, do you have any tips for that? Sure. I, I, like for me, uh, I, I, I completely agree with you. As an underwater photographer, there are times where you get stuck in a subject or a piece of reef. And by the time you look up, you realize, oh, where did my group go? Or where did my buddy disappear too? <laughs> um, yes. Right? And it happens. Like, I, I would think 
some of the most important safety pieces or concerns I, 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 I would suggest is before you go diving, have a plan. Like I think for, for us in the Caribbean, I think we are, I would say what other divers would say, like especially people that dive in cold water, very cavalier. Because we, we, we have the benefit of, <laughs> of, of, of 60 to 100 feet visibility in some days, mm-hmm. where if I do lose my body and I look up, I can kick for like maybe 10 seconds and see bubbles and be like, ah, find them. <laughs> I, I can find you. I don't think necessarily cold water divers or divers in Lovis water has that uh, sort of option necessarily. No, we don't have that luxury. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I would say first and foremost is like have a plan and stick to your plan. So like if I go diving and for some reason I get separated from my buddy, I'm always, I always, like I literally carry all my safety gear. So I will, I will be diving with an SMB at all times. I have my, my whistles, my, my, my dive horns and my rattles under the water. And then I have lit, uh, for me, my gear in itself, I always have something bright on me. So I have a pink headband that I, on, on my, uh, mask that if it's a day dive, you literally, you're not going to miss me because I am pretty much uh, lit up under the water with my, my headband sort of stuff like Very that. Very vibrant. Um, you mean the camera's not going to give you away? Well, <laughs> you'd, you'd be surprised if you're like in between reefs, or even on a sunny day, that you can get caught in between and people are looking for you and they don't see you though. Like we joke and say like, oh, with my big rig, you're going to see me a mile off. But we know the reality of being under the water. Sometimes that's not the case. <laughs> Like with regards to safety, when you when you when you talked about like uh, running out of air and stuff like that, or losing track of your depth, I think it is important that you stay conscious of what you're doing in your environment because, as much as you're taking uh, underwater fo- uh, photos, you're still diving first. And I think for me, I've always been a stickler for the safety stuff and knowing my training limits. So even though I I, I know where I can push and how things can bend. I'm like, okay, if I said I was uh, diving for 60 minutes, if I said my maximum depth was going to be 100 feet, uh, if I'm checking my, my air consumption, like I'm, I'm very much at 70 bar or, or about 700 PSI, I'm starting to shallow up towards my safety stuff. I'm going to stick to those things. Now, if I get separated from my buddy and said like, okay, I'll tell my boat captain, if I get separated, look out for my SMB. Like make sure they know the, the, the color of my SMB. To ensure that if it's popped, they know that I'm. That's where I'm at. I think that's a great way to put it. Like you said, you're diving first and you're taking pictures second. Like that is a really good way to put it. When you're diving a rebreather, that counts like ten times more. Like, yeah, it's a whole different ball game. Well, yeah, when there's no bubbles coming up to the surface for your captain to keep an eye on. Yes, I <laughs> yeah. think it, I think it's important if you get separated that the first thing that happens is your SMB goes up, so they have a marker. Because I don't know, Nick, you. You, you know, Grenada currents on, on some days, it can push you out and and you can get pretty much uh, off a dive site faster than you you, you, you had planned for. So And knowing, yeah, having a good plan, knowing, knowing where you're diving and, you know, knowing the area, it's very different than if, you, if you're diving somewhere new that you don't know, right? Correct, correct. So to, to hop in here, I want to kind of back up for a second. Uh, you were saying you get really creative when you are sitting at the computer. Um, I'm assuming you shoot uh, you know your photos in raw most photographers do but uh, what's your philosophy on post-processing uh for me yes i do shoot all of my photos in raw and i think post-processing is a necessity there in in the digital age of, of cameras there is no photograph that is not processed as much as people may say 
that I don't process it as much and that I try to keep my mm-hmm. pictures natural. And like for me, I'm, I like the art form of taking a photograph and trying to keep it as, as much as possible as to what I saw and the environment that I was diving and the lighting conditions and so forth. But there, there, there are, I would say, I would say beginner photographers may post a picture that is not processed simply because they either don't have the uh, software to process the photo afterwards mm-hmm. or for them they're like no one told them that like you should process your photo using whatever software yeah. because i think something as simple as shooting under the water your entire your entire color colors are completely off from what you're seeing versus what your camera sensors are picking up yeah. and so i think it is an important uh, part of i think photography in the modern era especially digital photography. I think it's something that you have to do if you'd like to portray the picture of what is actually being seen and also encourage people and inspire people because I think we've all seen pictures and videos of a green water dive or a, a low-vis dive. And you're like, oh, if you're trying to like let, encourage somebody to, to or to introduce somebody to, to diving, I don't think that's going to hit the mark with them. They'll be like, oh, so I guess we don't see anything. Whereas if you did a little bit of work on the post-processing and showed somebody an image with vibrant colors and great lighting and, you know, just overall uh, a, a clear picture, I think people are just more encouraged to do that. Where can people find you online uh, so we can see some of your images? Oh, absolutely. And share those? So I uh, primarily I share imagery on uh, my Instagram. So at Drew is my handle. Um, mm-hmm. Like my website is currently still in development, which takes a little bit longer when you do a lot of this stuff on your own. I haven't reached a point where uh, I'm big enough to, to to outsource or to to bring in additional help yet. So I am working on building a few other components uh, and a few projects here and there. But like primarily, I showcase my my photography on um my Instagram handle. But since I dive out and I, I, I work a, a lot with EcoDive down here in Grenada, I also do share some of my imagery for, for various purposes uh, for, for the dive shop. Well, we'll make sure to get those all linked in our show notes there for people who are interested in checking out your beautiful uh, beautiful that. photos. Yeah, I've been, I've been sharing some of, the, of his stuff on our Instagram as we're recording. That's uh, some pretty cool stuff. Oh, I appreciate that. No, nice. So, Kian, what keeps you diving? I think I think the need for compressed air. <laughs> I, I would say I would say it's an addiction, but I think most divers understand that. Like um, uh, to to sort of give a, like an anecdote story, uh, anecdotal story there. I think like I'd go back to like some of my travels when I was uh, on the African continent a couple of years back. I was doing sort of this like one of my like bucket list items of going from Cape Town to Cairo, and I did end up in some countries like like. Um, Rwanda, Uganda, like they have lakes, but like it's mostly enclosed land pieces. So like you're pretty much if you're spending a time in a town or village where it's mountains and safari and massive plains and no water, I think my body craves getting back to the ocean. I think I, I go maybe three weeks, four weeks, and then like something in my brain clicks and says, like, okay, find your way to a water source that's salt water. And I think really it's be like growing up on an island. 
it's somehow embedded that like even in Trinidad where a beach might have been like a 30, 40 minute drive, it's not two or three days to get to the to the beach. So like in other places that have been where it can take you a long time to get to the water or some people have never seen the ocean. And for me, again, it fascinates my mind that that's one thing. But for me, I know my 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 I know myself in a way that like somehow I'm just drawn back to the ocean, no matter where where I go in the world. Yeah, I think we all are, and that's probably most of the reason why we are uh, all here doing this podcast right now. Um, well, Keon, thank you for sharing a lot of that with us and as uh, excellent information. Um, Nick, though, you've got uh, some more ocean conscious uh, stuff here with our Think Blue segment. Yeah, so we haven't. I think we've had a bit of a format mix up the last couple of times because our guests have have, um, have been having a little longer interviews, I guess. So we're kind of bringing it back this week. Um, this week we're talking about skipping the gloves. Um, gloves are sort of necess- necessity in cold water environments, but they incentivize divers consciously, otherwise, to like touch surfaces underwater, and you know they feel as if their hands are protected. Um, so in tropical reef environments and other habitats. Um, you know, touching things like reefs and corals, um, is, you know, it's destructive to, to the environment. Um, and many resorts actually discourage the use of gloves. And, you know, talking photography, um, I had an experience in Hawaii where, like, I actually saw photographers, you know, one hand on on the camera and literally, you know, the other hand, like, pushing off of the reef with, with a tropical glove, which is <laughs> such a bad idea. So, you know, uh, avoid the gloves um, and then use good, good buoyancy control instead to to harm sensitive marine life. That's probably a good way to go. Most definitely. And I know I've seen that too. And so like the really <clears throat> thin tropical gloves, they're like half the time they won't protect you against like any serious stings or, you know, sharp edges on a wreck or something. So they're not that helpful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I definitely always uh, heard the, you know, you got to wear your gloves in the wreck and I'm like, well, what's, what's this little thin glove going <laughs> to do to that sharp edge of <laughs> steel but but i don't wear gloves i only wear gloves when the water hits like zero yeah there you go you gotta you gotta live your (laughs) tough life i I cut it off at around 12 degrees i don't don't know about i don't know about keon but 12 celsius my coldest water dive was 14 degrees yes and i didn't have gloves and i was dying so (laughs) (laughs) there you go so 14 is his cutoff as far as he knows Uh, April, you got a social media follow us. Yeah, so my social media follow this week is Lara on Agricola, which is actually a coffee shop in Halifax. Uh, but they're doing something kind of special with one of our hosts. Uh, so Nick has some of his photography uh, up in the cafe right now. And he's going to have a bit of an art show. So Nick, I don't know if you want to follow up on that a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, I really want to give Cafe Lara a shout out for you know hosting artists in the community, um, and photographers and other you know artists, um, and also you know shout out to anybody that wants to go there and have a coffee and not just check out the artwork but support a small local business that is you know really was suffering during the lockdown and one of those cafes that locked down early while you know the big chain coffee stores were still going, so you know go show some go show, show her some love and uh, watch some nice photos I guess. I got to say, I was there today, guys, and uh, took a quick peek at some of that work. And, you know, just to tie back into what Keon was saying before, 
I think one of the cool parts when you look at photography here is that people get this idea that it's got to be drab and, and terrible and green. And I think if you do take a second to stop by there and you maybe have a look at the pictures that Nick's put up, obviously he has some beautiful Grenada pictures as well, but there's a couple of pictures, in, including one particularly handsome diver. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, but, one, uh, there's one of the mitt on there. <laughs> beyond, beyond that one, though, in, in truth, what I was getting at is like if you were to look at the pictures and the quality of the colors that come through and the vibrancy, you'd never expect that those pictures came out of Nova Scotia. I certainly didn't. I mean, I knew because I knew Nick taking them. But if you were to look at those, you'd have no clue. And I think that kind of speaks to the quality of the pictures that you're getting out there. So go by, have a look. And I think it looks fantastic, Nick. Good job. Thanks, everybody. We also want to uh, hear about a book recommendation for this week. Feels like I'm sucking up all the oxygen. (laughs) Um, Uh, That's all right. So I'm just going to put uh, Keon on the spot. Is is there a favorite book that you have that you might recommend to listeners? Because I have a recommendation here, but if you've got one, I'll let you take the slot. Didn't read as many books as I wanted to, but my last book that I read that I was really inspired by was Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. And I know like it sort of ran its its course throughout the like the tour stuff like that, but I think it was one of those books that having read it, I just think a lot of people related with where she was coming from. Not just from like I think mm. her being married to like the former president, but like one of those books that like from a human perspective connecting with people. I think it transcended, I think, across the board, no matter what background you came from. And I, I really enjoyed that about that particular book. But that's, but at least for this year, one of the books that I read and, and really was inspired by was uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming book. Nice. Thanks for that. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, well, thanks for that on-the-spot uh, book <laughs> recommendation, Keon. And, uh, and I wanted to say that does it for today's episode. So... Uh, for the third time in the last 30 seconds thanks to Keon Wilkie for joining us it's been great having you on this episode thank you for having me anytime we look forward to having you back in a future episode too sounds good and I can't uh, not say thank you to Nick Amit and April for being here helping us out very happy to be here and uh, you know fantastic that we're on a podcast with a fellow Trini here and, and able to at least mention doubles again. You know, this is what the second time I've mentioned that. Eventually, some people are going to be like, I got to go figure out what this stuff is. So, uh, Keon, thank I you mean, very don't much. Don't worry, I'll have a double fee this week. Oh, boy, you're killing okay. me. You're killing me. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure I enjoy it extra. <laughs> I thank you for that. If it's any consolation, we had doubles last night because my brother is pretty good at making Ooh. these. So, yeah, we. Oh, very nice. Yeah, so it's not quite the same as a as a roti shop or like you know a double sh- uh, vendor on the side of the road, but uh, it's a pretty good facsimile for being here in Halifax. I have to say. So, so I meant. Let me get this right. We came over to your place to talk podcast the other week, and you made us ribs, but you didn't give us doubles. <laughs> I can't. I just, I just want. I just want to understand what's going on here. Well, let's, let's be. <laughs> Clear. I can't make the doubles, right? This is one of those things I rely on my brother. He he does it and invites me over. So, and you know, I mean, I was trying right. to host in a Canadian fashion, right? Like it seems you should have like just the, you nailed it. To your brother's house. I should have done that. Actually, you probably would have enjoyed that better than the uh, the, the botchery that happened here as a result of the fire department being here. And all the rest of that. So. Amit is the only vegetarian who invites people over and serves ribs. Yeah, yeah. It's the Canadian it's a, thing to do, apparently. So I figured, why not? <laughs> that and Cheddar Smokies. Yes, <laughs> Cheddar right. Smokies. 
Even vegetarians know those are delicious. Right. I've never tasted one, <laughs> but I know they're supposed to be delicious. So, Just by looking at them, you know. That's right. <laughs> you can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook with at divein.thepodcast. Our email is divein.thepodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.diveinthepodcast.com. On there, you can send us a voice message and find links to all of our past episodes. On social media, you can follow me at IDiveOK. April is at April Weikert. Nick Winkler is at Nicholas Winkler Photography. You can find links to everything we mentioned on today's episode in the show notes or on our website, diveinthepodcast.com. Next week, we speak to Sophie Morgan, an underwater filmmaker and producer. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Cuba. Make sure you head over to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.